God is taking care of us in every way possible and, and allowing us to have water. And I know that sometimes we think we're getting too much of it, but we're getting exactly what he wants us to have. And so we appreciate and thank him for being able to do that for us. Again, we're glad and grateful that you're here with us. You know on Sunday nights what we've been doing is answering some questions that that uh, that uh, you ranked, that you rated as we started the year. I gave you a list, you remember, and you went down through, and we went through and compiled that, and so we're answering the most requested questions that that we have, and the one that we're going to be looking at tonight is one of those. And so we're glad that you're here. You know, on Sunday mornings, we've been looking at the greatest questions of the ages from questions that are actually found in the Word of God. These are questions that we have uh, sometimes on our regular radar. I believe, truly believe, that there are many people who are attracted to the gospel message, the good news of Jesus Christ, the fact that he has come and died for us, that he uh, made it possible for us to have salvation in him. And yet these same people who have that attraction also have some questions that that linger in their mind, some questions that, that they want answered in their own mind. And some of these questions are like this one. Why are there so many denominations out in the world? When we, when we go down the streets, we find a church here and a church there and a church at a different place. And this one says one thing and this one says another and this one says a third thing. And, and if you go far enough, you're going to find uh, tens and then hundreds of different ones as you travel down the streets of America and other places of the world. And so people want to know, why are there so many different denominations that are out there? Which leads to another, can't the followers of Jesus just learn to get along? Isn't that a good question? Can't the followers of Jesus just learn to get along and, and, and uh, settle any differences that they might have and and all of the things, you know, sometimes we say even about society today, can't we all just learn to get along? But you would think that people who claim to be followers of Jesus, that they would learn to get along. But it seems because you have so many different brands of religion, so many different things that are taught in different uh, churches, that, that, that folks are not, not actually getting along. Which, again, brings us to another what can be done about the religious division that exists? You know, is there, is there a solution? Is there a fix to it? And I believe that there is, and we, we won't have time tonight in the lesson that we're going to be looking at uh, to, to deal with the fixes. We'll talk about some of those in some of the uh, lessons that, that we'll be presenting in the next few weeks. But, but as we think about that, uh, are, are there... Uh, things that can be done about it, and we'll for at this moment simply say yes, but, but one other thing as we think about it, can I be just a Christian without being a member of a denomination? And you know, as you're driving along, you see all of these different ones, and you say, I like the message of the gospel that Jesus Christ died for me. Can I be simply a Christian following Jesus without being a member of a denomination? Now, in reply to some of these questions, some of them, some folks make an effort to, to sort of discount the significance of the religious division that uh, is present in our world today. Some say, well, you know, the differences aren't all that great. We're all seeking to follow the same Savior, and we're all looking to go to the same place. We're just on different roads. 
going to the same place, following the same Lord. And so folks will try to discount the, the, the differences and, and, and uh, you know, even the things that, that the questions uh, raise in, in regard to that. Or it may even be that you would hear, and you hear this occasionally, uh, that someone would say, well, all of the religious division is good. It enables people to, to have a choice and they can find a church that, that suits them, that suits their taste, that suits you, you know, the kinds of things that, that they really like. And so the religious division that we have in the eyes of some or is a good thing. But, but as, as we think about that, you know, I, I can't help but wonder, is it wrong? As you drive down and you, you see so much division, you can't help but ask, is it wrong for all of this to be? And I'll simply go ahead and say, state right here at the very beginning of our lesson tonight, I do believe that it is wrong. That we have so much division within the religious bodies, those who claim to follow after Christ, I believe that it's wrong. And in this lesson tonight, we're going to see if we can see a, a little bit. We won't have time tonight to deal with every aspect of it, but we're going to see if we can see just a little bit as to why that might be the case. And so let's, let's begin thinking about some things tonight. Number one, if I were to ask you what is a denomination, if you were going to define the term denomination, how would you do that? Well, I don't know of any better way of doing it than just going to the dictionary and let the dictionary tell us what the definition of a denomination is, okay? And so let's begin with the American Heritage Dictionary, which says simply about a denomination, it's a large group of religious congregations united under a common faith and name and organized under a single administrative or legal hierarchy. Okay, now, that may be just a little bit technical, but if we break it down, we have a group of churches that have agreed, and, and I'm taking their definition, a group of churches who have agreed to place themselves under these leaders, this certain, uh, this certain leadership. That's what a denomination is. If we go to the Webster's Dictionary, you know, two very, two very prominent dictionaries, Denomination is simply referred to, or defined rather, as a religious organization uniting in a single legal and administrative body a number of local congregations. And so again, we have, have actually the same thing, just said in a few different uh, words. And so in, in simple terms, a, a denomination is a group of congregations that are joined together under the same governing body. But as you think about it, that number of congregations can be as few as two. It doesn't have to be hundreds or thousands. It can be just a simple small group. And in some cases, that, that is the case. You've had just a very few number of churches that have come together and agreed to be together. But by their tie to a governing body, wherever that governing body might be, uh, their tie to that governing body above and beyond the local congregation, uh, that, that separates them and, and uh, by definition causes them to be denominated, be separated from all other congregations 
separated or denominated from all other congregations that, that would not submit to that same authority, that, that doesn't claim to be under that same headship. Now, for the sake of simplicity tonight, let's just simply look and, and see what we're talking about. Most people know that when you think about the Roman Catholic Church, you think about a very large denomination. When you think about the number of adherents worldwide, it's one of the largest. But where do they look? Where is their headship? The headship is found in Rome or in Vatican City, actually, isn't it? And everyone comes together underneath the headship of what we simply call, or what's called in our world today, the Pope. And so that's what we're talking about. That's what American heritage and that's what uh, Webster's dictionaries are defining. Same could be said. Many of you have heard uh, the ones who have been to Romania talk about uh, the Orthodox Church or the Eastern Orthodox Church. Uh, you may know that at one time the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church were one. However, they, they broke apart. And now, rather than submitting to what authority is found at Vatican City in, in Italy, uh, the Eastern Orthodox Church has its uh, uh, headship, if you will, in Constantinople under the ecumenical uh, bishop. And so they, they submit to his authority. They don't call him a pope like the uh, Roman Catholics do, but, but that's the head. And so, you know, you could trace those down. Uh, same could be said about perhaps the Lutheran Church, uh, who traces their headship to the Missouri Synod. And uh, they submit to the, uh, to the leadership of the, that group in, in that particular section. Or the Anglican Church, which actually is headed by the Queen of England. And so it was begun by, as a split from the Roman Catholic Church, again, from uh, the time of Henry VIII. You may remember that name. Uh, when he wanted to, uh, to annul his marriage and the Catholic Church would not allow him to do that, he said, I'll just make it my own. And so King Henry decided that he would have set up a, or a, a group, that the ones who were in uh, uh, England would be under his headship. And so... It still today, to this day, traces its headship to, uh, to, the, uh, to the monarch or whoever is sitting on the throne in England. And so we could go through and we could talk about a number of different ones, but they're, they're giving their allegiance to someone and they're uniting to something that is, that is bigger or, or smaller rather than, than the Lord's church in, in general, but bigger than a... Uh, a single congregation. And that's, that's where you get a denomination. Now, let's carry it a step farther. What is denominationalism? You know, we talk about denominations and, and, and we need to ask the question, what is denominationalism? You know, you see that ISM on the end of things sometimes and uh, you, you, you immediately your mind is drawn to to some thought that, well, it's got to be uh, adherents or followers of something. But again, let's go back to the dictionary. Let's go back to the American Heritage Dictionary. Denominationalism is the tendency to separate into religious denominations 
advocacy of separation into religious denominations, strict adherence to a denomination, uh, uh, denomination, or the last word that's used is simply sectarianism. Divided into, dividing into different groups or sect, S-E-C-T. Dividing into those. Now notice again, as you look at the definition, you're going to see that, that many times, and this should come to our mind, many times when, when you're speaking to someone, it, it seems as though they're trying to get you not one to Christ and, and to be a follower of Him, but to do what? Be a follower of their particular denomination, their particular separation group, their particular sect. And so, you see that definition, you go to Webster's Dictionary, devotion to denominational principles or interests, narrow emphasizing of denominational difference. And again, we find the term sectarianism. Dividing into, dividing into groups. And so, as we think about... Uh, as we think about uh, those two definitions of denominationalism, you know, I would concede that in our day and time, there are a lot of people in, throughout the denominational world who, who really and truly are not all that devoted to their denominational principles or, or interests. And there are so many people today who have come to conclude that, that one way is as good as another, and so just as long as you're part of something, you're in good shape. And I, I concede that, but here's, a, here's the rub. By membership in a denomination, they are by implication advocating for separation for sectarianism of religious bodies, of the religious world. By, by being a part of a denomination, they're saying... It's good, it's right, it's okay. They're advocating by, by example that it's okay to be a part of a divided system of, we'll use this in the largest sense possible, Christianity. Now, having said that, is denominationalism really all that bad? Is it really all that bad? You know, a lot of people will ask that question, is it really all that bad? And as we consider that, we probably need to go a step further. Can one faithfully serve Christ while participating in religious division? And again, let me simply say tonight as we seek to answer this question, I am advocating and I am suggesting that we can't faithfully serve Christ while participating in religious division. It's an impossibility, as we'll see as our lesson progresses and develops tonight. And so we would, at this point, simply listening to what I have to say, say that denominationalism is a bad thing, that it is a wrong thing, and that, that, that it's not something that we should be participants in. But we need to move forward. Why? Why? Why would I make a statement like that? Why would anybody make a statement like that? Or we just narrow and bigoted and say, well, we don't want people to have a choice or, you know, something that society has come up with that, that, that you're just, uh, 
you, you just don't like people being able to do what they want to do. Why is denominationalism wrong? Well, let's give two or three answers tonight as we look at the Word of God. Number one on our list, denominationalism is wrong because it is unscriptural. Unscriptural. What do we mean by that? Well, when we're talking about it being unscriptural, we, we understand that there's no basis in the Bible for local churches being divided into various denominational bodies. Well, what do you mean? Well, simply this. There is no denomination that can go to the Bible and say, look, here's the passage that says this is all right. Here, here's our church. Here's our denomination in the Bible. No one can do that. No denomination can do that. In the New Testament, local congregations were independent, self-governing congregations. The church organization in the New Testament was limited to simply within the congregation itself under the headship of elders, also known as pastors, bishops, overseers, presbyters, depending upon which Bible passage that you're reading in regard to those leaders. And these men are appointed as overseers to oversee only the congregation which they are members of. One elder can't be over another congregation in a different location. Whether it be across the town or across the ocean. It can't, it can't work that way. And so these are, these are local congregations that are always, in the New Testament, always overseen in the local setting. They are not bigger than that. In the book of Acts chapter 20 at verse 17, Paul from Miletus called for the elders of Ephesus. We remember that passage. He sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. But when he was talking to them, when he actually was meeting with them, if you drop on down to verse 28 of that passage, Paul tells them this. He says, pay, reading from the English Standard Version, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock over which the, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. And he talks about, he goes on, talks about how that from their own members they would arise, if you continue reading there in the book of Acts chapter 20, from their own membership, from the own, from their own, from, from the, actually from the eldership, they would arise those who were like wolves who, who would be killing the sheep. Simple search of church history points us back to the church at Ephesus as being one of the first to, to leave God's plan uh, of ruling the church. They began to set one elder above the other elders, and in the process of time, and we'll skip forward, they began from that location to, uh, to, to cause this elder or these, this group of elders to be over these churches and Eventually, in 600 years, it would evolve into what we've already mentioned tonight. One leader in one certain place. And so, as we look at it, God had a plan as to how a congregation would, would be operated. How the church would be operated. Uh, that plan is alluded to in the book of 1 Peter chapter one, or 5, verses 1 and 2 where Peter writes and says, I exhort the elders among you 
as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock that is among you. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. The only authority above the local church in the New Testament was Christ and His apostles. In the very beginning, the apostles were the ones to which the elders went, but as the apostles passed away and they died, they were not replaced. That leadership, these men were taught and they were trained in Christianity, and that leadership was left within them. And it was done by them. And so, once the church began, and the apostles uh, apostles were there, and then eventually all died out, uh, we had God's plan. It was fully revealed. Individuals, or synods as they're called, or conferences as they're sometimes called, that presume to, we'll just use a, a word, usurp the authority of the local congregations today, do so without any Bible verse to which they can go and say this is the way that it's supposed to be done. Therefore, our first observation is that it is unscriptural. It does not have support from the Word of God. But add to that number two. Denominationalism is wrong because it's anti-scriptural. Anti-scriptural. Whenever we see the word anti, we automatically understand what that means, against. Against. It's against Scripture. Contrary to Scripture. It has, not only is it without scriptural support, but it breaks the Scripture. It breaks the law. It breaks what Jesus had taught about his people, his church. Now, where, does it, where, where do we find that? If you have your Bible tonight, open to the book of John, chapter 17. John, chapter 17. In John, chapter 17, Jesus and his apostles have left what we know as the Last Supper. It's on the night before his crucifixion. It is the night that Jesus goes to pray. It is the night that he is arrested, and um, we know the accounts of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and what he has to say. John, John gives us a little bit different view. And what John has to offer is the prayer. We, we know some of the prayer that Jesus prayed by Matthew and Mark and Luke, you know, where he asked the Lord, the, his Father, to remove the cup, but it's here in the book of uh, John that we find another greater expansion of the prayer, that, uh, some of the prayer that Jesus prayed. In John chapter 17, drop down to verses 20 through 23, Jesus is praying to his Father and says, I do not ask for these only. He's talking about his apostles that are there. Just mention them if you read the context. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That they all may be... What's the next word? One. That word is not divided. 
That word is not even two. That they may be one. Just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be, what's that next word? That they may be one, even as we are, what's that next word? One. I and them, and you and me, that we may become perfectly One, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. How can anyone read that prayer of my Lord as he was praying on the night, on the same night that he would pray because of our sins with blood-stained sweat. How could anybody read that and believe that Jesus is okay with two groups of Christians, much less 10,000? I can count to one. I may not be the best math genius in the world, but I can count to one. And that's the number that my Lord prayed for. Right? You see, I had y'all read that out of your Bible. You don't have to take my word for it. And so anything that is different from what my Lord prayed for, goes against, is anti to, what my Lord prayed for. These are found in God's Word. Anti-scriptural. Look at another passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 13. We spent a lot of time in the book of 1 Corinthians, studying through that book. But I want to remind us of what is said in the very first chapter. Paul writes and says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be... How many divisions? If you're reading reading there with us, how many divisions? That there be no divisions among you, but that you be... Uh, that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is a quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Paul goes on, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? No. 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 That's the answer to those three questions. No. And and so Paul is appealing that they won't be separated, divided. I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ. 
It's not right for them to have four divisions. How could we have 400? Or 4,000? And be pleasing to Christ. Matter of fact, Paul goes on in chapter 3 and shows us that sectarianism, do you remember as we were defining denominations and denominationalism, that it's dividing into sects or sectarianism? Paul shows us that this idea, this concept of sectarianism, dividing into these groups is a sign of carnality. What does that mean? Just being worldly. Being worldly. Not, not spiritual, but worldly. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 3 and 4, For you're still of the flesh, for while there is jealousy and strife among you, are, are you not in the flesh and behaving in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? That's not a good thing that Paul is saying. He's not just saying, okay, you're just acting like human beings. He's saying you're acting like a worldly human being. He's condemning what they are doing. And so, point number two, we've, we look first of all that it's against the prayer of Jesus. Point number two, it's against what the great Apostle Paul wrote in regard to the church. But, but let's go back and let's think about the fact that it opposes the efforts of Christ on the cross. Anti-scriptural again, it, 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 it opposes the efforts of Christ on the cross. Look at Ephesians chapter 2 in your Bible. Verses 14 through 16 is where we're going to be reading. In Ephesians chapter 2, he, he talks about the Jewish people, talks about the Gentile people. And notice what he says in verses 14 through 16. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both... Uh, there's another word again. Made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself... One new man in place of the two. So making peace. Uh, look at verse 16. And might reconcile us both to God in one body. Through the... You can say it. Through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. What do we learn from that? Jesus died to break down the wall of division between Jew and Gentile, for sure. But we also learn that Jesus died to reconcile mankind, both Jew and Gentile, into how many bodies? One. You know, when we sin, anytime we sin, we, our sin works against the efforts of Christ on the cross, doesn't it? Did He not die for our sin, put away our sin on the cross? And when we go back to it and start living a life in regard to that, we would say, hey, you know, we're, we're opposing Christ on the cross. His work, what He's done for us. We don't, 
we can't encourage people to do that. But you know what? By the same token, denominationalism does the same thing. Why did Jesus die? Well, he died for our sins. Well, what else does Paul say he died for? To reconcile us to God in how many bodies? One. And so, to claim it any other way is opposing what Christ did on the cross. I can't believe that's a good thing, can you? And so, again, as we think about it, what's our point? Denominationalism is anti-scriptural. But number three, it's also harmful. Harmful to the cause of Christ. You know, Jesus knew that unity among His disciples would be what some has called the final apologetic, the proof, the argument for His way. Go back, if you will, to what is said in the book of John, chapter 17. We read it just a few minutes ago. Look at verse number 21 again. John 17, verse 21. That they all may be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us. Now what does the rest of that verse say? So that the world may believe. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. Folks, in view of Jesus' words, we should not be surprised when we look around us and we hear people talking about denominationalism. We think about unbelievers who are slow to except the gospel coming from a divided religion. From the numerous denominations in our world. Many people point to the divided condition of, uh, of Christianity, professing uh, for, uh, of those who are professing to follow after Christ, atheists and agnostics, they point to it. Those of uh, non-Christian religions such as Judaism and Islam and others point to denominationalism as a reason not to believe in Christ. You know, even, even such uh, cults as Mormonism started in reaction to the denominationalism of Joseph Smith's day. Many of us don't even realize that. Denominationalism is harmful not only is it unscriptural and anti-scriptural, it's harmful. Folks don't believe because of the divided state of, in the big sense of the picture, Christianity in our world today. It's harmful. Now, with our understanding that denominationalism is heading in the direction of being wrong, as we'll conclude in just a few minutes, let me share with you what three men of the past have said. first one is a man by the name of Martin Luther. Not Martin Luther King, Martin Luther, the, the great reformer, if you will, from the 1500s. 
And, and <clears throat> later, uh, the man who is credited with being the head of and the founder of the Lutheran Church, I ask that men make no reference to my name, call themselves not Lutherans, but Christians. What's Luther? My doctrine, I'm sure, is not mine, nor have I been crucified for anyone. St. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 3, would not allow Christians to call themselves Pauline or Petrine, but Christian. How then should I, poor, foul carcass that I am, come to have men give to the children of Christ a name derived from my worthless name? No, no, my dear friends. Let us abolish all party names and call ourselves Christians after Him whose doctrine we have. That's a pretty profound plea, isn't it? Don't call me... Don't, don't separate Christianity out. Don't, please don't call yourself by my name. Paul forbid it, he said... And actually did. We read 1 Corinthians chapter 3 just a few minutes ago and understood that he forbids it. That's what Martin Luther had to say. Here's another man, John Wesley. John Wesley, credited with being the founder of the, not only the Wesleyan religion, but Methodism, modern day Methodism. He made this statement, and you can see the, the reference there, but would to God that all party names and unscriptural phrases and forms which have divided the Christian world were forgot and that the very name, and he's talking about the name Methodist in the context, might never be mentioned more but be buried in eternal oblivion. Pretty profound, isn't it? Here's another one, a man by the name of Charles Spurgeon, one of the greatest Baptist preachers that has ever lived and, and, and has written some of the finest material in, in many ways uh, that, that you can read. Uh, he, he, he has some flaws in his theology, but he's done some, some good writing. Notice what he said. I look forward with pleasure to the day when there will not be a Baptist living. I hope that the Baptist name will soon perish. But let Christ's name last forever. Folks, these are not things that some, some other preacher, some, some member of the church of Christ has come up with. And we're not using these to you know, cause hurt or problems or we're simply saying what men of, uh, of a great deal of faith and a great deal of Bible knowledge, what they had to say about denominationalism. It's pretty powerful when you think about who it is that is saying these things. And so tonight, as we begin to bring our lesson to a close, is it wrong to be a member of something that is? And I want you to answer the question. Is it wrong to be a member of something that is unscriptural? You can't find a, a scripture for it. The Bible teaches us that 
Whatever we do in word or deed, we're to do all in the name of, by the authority of the Lord. So, is it wrong to be a member of something that's unscriptural? I would have to say yes. Is it wrong to be a member of something that is anti-scriptural? That just blatantly goes against the Lord's prayer or the writing of the Apostle Paul or any other writing in Scripture? Is it wrong? I don't know how you'd answer that, but I'm going to have to answer yes. Is it wrong to be a member of something that is harmful to the cause of Christ when the divisiveness of the the divided religious world causes people to, to fail or refuse to be a part of what God has brought to mankind? And it stops people from doing that. I'm going to have to say, yes, it's wrong. But now, if it's wrong to be a member of something that's unscriptural, and anti-scriptural, and harmful to the cause of Christ, and denominations by their very definition are these three things, is it wrong to be a member of a denomination? If by definition these three things are unscriptural, antiscriptural, and harmful, you can't be a member of one of them without being unscriptural, antiscriptural, and harmful yourself, can you? Which should we put? But alas, there's hope. Alas, there's hope. Not all is lost. For throughout the world, more and more people are throwing aside their denominational shackles, even in our modern millennial world. And they're wanting to be followers of Jesus Christ and the freedom of the gospel the liberty that's found in Christ that comes from being simply a Christian. That's what they're looking for. It begins really with two things. Number one, an understanding of the carnal, the worldly, the fleshly nature of division that we've looked at tonight. It's talked about in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. And number two, a strong desire to follow Jesus Christ and His prayer for unity that we read in the book of John chapter 17, verses 20 through 23. We have pled for many years now for people to be simply a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ, having Him as their only head, to be a part of that church, that one and only true church that we read about in the New Testament that doesn't give its allegiance to some, some body, some group, some council, some synod, but simply gives its allegiance to Christ. What's found in His Word, the New Testament, doing only the things that we find that are authorized for us, 
rejecting those things that are unscriptural, anti-scriptural, or harmful. Following our Lord. That's our plea. When we ask you as members of the church of Christ, as sometimes it's mentioned, we're not asking you to be a part of a, a divided group. A simple body that has a location. We're asking you to be a part of what God adds you to in the book of Acts chapter number 2. His church. In a couple of weeks, we'll be talking more about that church and looking at some details in regard to it in regard to another of the questions. But tonight, as we have studied together in this brief time, is it wrong to be a member of a denomination? I believe that open and honest hearts thinking about what is said in the Word of God, has to conclude, we have to conclude, that we can't, we can't, we can't continue on in that way, that mode of doing things. It may be that you would like to study more. I'd love to study with you. It may be tonight that you, that you know that you need to be a part of the church that Jesus Christ bought with His own blood that the way you become a part of it is being baptized into Him, which puts you into His church because He is the head of the body. Maybe tonight that you know that you need to do that. If that's the case, we'd invite you to come and let us assist you with your obedience in Christ. It may be tonight that there's something amiss in your life, like Stephen has mentioned at the beginning and asked for our prayers. It may be that you know of something in your life that you need to make right. That's the case. Why don't you come right now as we stand?